And periodically, I will try to react as Cat would react while you're talking. And you see if you can pick it out. I will be able to. So it's not a reflection on me. It's a reflection or, on you. A reflection on Cat. Yeah, She's not fine. here. Blame her. to another episode of 1980s Now, a weekly examination of the importance of 1980s pop culture and its influence today. My name is Will, and joining me as always... How do you say this? Huh. Yeah? Well, he always joins me. Huh. My friend and co-host, John. Hi there. Yeah. Oh, you left the space. <laughs> it's so weird to not say cat yeah. first. We got to add cat in later. <laughs> so... Yeah, cat's not here today. She has a... She has a more... A, definitely more important thing to do today, so... Mm. Uh, she is with us in spirit always, but and she'll be back next week. Uh, meanwhile, uh, I want to don't want to forget to remind you folks listening, or you folk, because mm-hmm. you talk to the audience member as a single person, you folk, I don't want to forget to remind you Perfect. Uh, that in addition to his co-hosting duties, uh, check out John on his own uh, podcast, Gen X Corona, and YouTube channel. Oh, thank you. Hey, anyway, on today's show, there's definitely, this cat is definitely the, what, do we, what, what does someone say? She's the... Not the soul, the heart. I mean, she's those things for sure. She's the glue. The glue. There you go. The glue. How will we make it through this show? Well, I'm five minutes in and I, I, I'm lost. Yeah. And I'm bored. <laughs> well, thanks. Let's just wrap it up right now. Except she does the, uh, you know, she thanks the uh, patrons. And so what are we going to do about that now? Oh, we're screwed. I don't know. All right. Hey. Pull one from last week or something. I don't know. All right. Well, look, here's the good news. Okay. Because uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's a bummer that Kat's not here. But the good news is just you and me, a couple of dudes hanging out. Bro down. So... You know, we could talk about dude stuff. And so on today's yes. show, in the very least, uh, John and I are going to talk, uh, chat about our fictional role models. I thought you were going to say manscaping. Well, I said among th- among other things. I do have questions about your balls. Yeah. Oh, among, okay. We, we will get to that. Yes. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, this episode is brought to you by uh, Smooth Balls. What's that thing? <laughs> Is that the name of a business? It is. We used to get approached by something like that to do <laughs> advertisement. Like smooth my balls or something. Smooth. <laughs> I, I, they might not be around anymore. Lawnmower 2.0. Because I did used to hear them in other podcasts. You do hear Manscaped yeah. still. Oh. Yeah. I could do a commercial for those because I think I've already gone through one. It doesn't work anymore because it just tore it up. No. I need a heavy, <laughs> heavier duty model. Got a, you, got a, you got a coarse front lawn, huh? Okay. Yes. My cabbage patch is blooming. Kind of kind of wiry. There you go. <laughs> I realize you know what it is. Since Kat's not here to, uh, you know, lovingly and supportingly laugh at our truly terrible jokes. <laughs> I'm realizing how unfunny we truly are. To laugh at one another. You have to help me out, Will. Yeah. And so with regard to our uh, fictional male role models, though, I, I was remembering that, you know, in April of, I looked I had to look it up because I don't remember exactly, but in April of 2022, so April of last year, we talked about masculinity as represented in 80s films. It was an episode where mm-hmm. we also had an interview at the end of the episode where I chatted with Vernon Wells, who, you know, is truly... He was the epitome of, well, certainly one of our, our, our of, of machismo in the 1980s movies. Cause he's always playing a bad guy who you wouldn't want to fuck around with. Uh, but anyway, mm-hmm. so it, we're, this is distinct from that. And, and we could talk about why that is, I think, in a little bit. Uh, anyway, okay. before that, though, we're going to review current news stories related to 1980s media, including, we, as every week, we try to tie our news stories somehow into our topic so that, you know, the news informs the topic and the topic can reflect back on the news or use the news. Mm-hmm. This week, we're going to get an update on three Arnold Schwarzenegger sequel uh, films that we were promised, uh, certainly in the last 
10 years or so we've been promised them more, right. more recently, even the last couple of years. Uh, in look, and he's a guy we talked about when we talked about machismo. Uh, also, we're going to talk about how sure. Dana Carvey rejected Robin Williams. Mm. Uh, and we're going to get uh, an update on the Ghostbusters sequel. And we've got a code name to refer nice. to it. Anyway, there's time codes in the show notes if you'd like to skip around. Hey, before that, I'm going to make an announcement. Though. Mm. Keep an ear out. Because talking about, uh, you know, male role models and sort of the tropes of 1980s uh, films, TV shows, etc. This uh, week, I'm also going to be speaking with Sky McDonald about her newly released book, The Not-So-Nice Girl. Uh, it just came out a couple of weeks ago, end of May, I think it was May 30th. It's set in 1986, and it reads like a rom-com of that era. And so there's plenty hmm. of things in there that will remind you of your own youth. Certainly it did mine, mm-hmm. some of the experiences I had. But I'd be curious to ask her even about this idea about, because, you know, she has sort of distinct male types and they have to be you know pulled from the 1980s because i think if she said it today i think certainly things would be some be somewhat different but i'd be curious what her thoughts are about that like breakfast club style archetypes is that kind of thing you have the like you, you have the jock and you have the nerd and you have the, that kind of thing or yeah so yes is it, is it more esoteric than that is it more okay no yeah. i think i think to some extent like this the main character so far and i haven't finished the book but the main character so far feels like it could have been played by john cusack if it was set if it actually was a film okay. that came out you know all right. That kind of $2. charming guy. He's a little nebbishy, but Aloof. you know he's got the potential to woo the girl. Yeah. You know? Well, he's John Cusack, of course. All right. So now I was just stalling this whole time to make sure Kat wasn't really going to show up because she said she couldn't make it, but I thought maybe it was a ruse. I was thinking about that IT crowd episode because I know you watch it too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The yeah. one where Jen spends a day, you know, she's a, she's a, what's his name? Matt Berry, what's his character's name? Uh, I don't know. Anyway, there's that episode where yep. Jen's out of the office. So what they do, they have this list of all these things they've wanted to do, but they can't do because she's around. And they're chipping a golf ball into his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and he keeps missing and breaking things. Don't worry, I won't hit your teeth. And he smashes a window yeah. behind him. Like they're demolishing the IT office. Yeah, because, yeah, yeah. I think exactly. the first thing they do is take off their pants, right? And they're just in their boxers for the whole mm-hmm. remainder of it. So you're saying this is going to be literally a while the cat is away, the dudes will play. Oh, John, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. Why didn't that's I think what, of that? Let's do it. Yeah. Huh. Except it's spelled K-A-T. I called it. You were meant the animal. You meant that's the right. animal. It's with a K. Exactly oh, right. Did I did. That? And now you've, oh, you, okay. you made it even better. You, you yes anded me. Yes. Perfect, Will. Yes. Thank and you. I'm right, John. And you agree. Yes. And you agree. <laughs> uh, no. So look, this is what I have here. I have a list here of the, uh, from Watch Mojo of the top 10 sexiest women of the 1980s. Oh, yes. I wouldn't want to talk about this in front of Kat. Do you think she wouldn't be able to agree or disagree? Or do you think you just want... Just it's a dude talk. She would, but you know what? Quite look, I'll be honest with you because I'm always honest with you. I was racking my brain, mm-hmm. like, what could we talk about that I wouldn't feel comfortable talking about with Cat? Or okay. if she weren't here, she wouldn't feel like, oh, there's something I really wanted to say about that. You know, right? Oh, there was right. nothing. There really is nothing. Gotcha. Right. Right. She didn't miss out on some great commentary because she might not have as much to talk about right. these hot ladies of the '80s. I got it. Right. Okay. In the male role models was gotcha. the best thing, only because. She, and look, I don't doubt Kat has some male role models because I know she loved a lot of the stuff that we love from the 1980s, you mm-hmm. know, huge sure. fan of the Dukes of Hazard, uh, and, uh, you know, shows of that era. So anyway, that's as close as you can get. I love talking to Kat. I love her perspective mm-hmm. and she'd have a point on this anyway. Maybe I shouldn't even do this, but I'm going to run through these anyway. And this is shit. Then we'll cut this too. I have a feeling the whole show is going to be garbage, <laughs> but look, let's just see what we got here. It's going to be welcome to the show. Goodbye, everybody. Yeah, we'll it's t- going to be edited <laughs> down. Just a good, just a good part. So that's all that's left. It's going to be the announcements. <laughs> That's it. 
Hey, uh, a quick announcement. The show is over. <laughs> Let me end. All right, here you go. Number 10, Morgan Fairchild. Mm, too prissy. Yeah, I don't know. Something, she's definitely beautiful, but I've never, for me, it's going to have to be some combination of beauty and attraction. And then attraction is just some kind of like animal level lust or something, you know, like you Yeah, desire. you're right. There, there, there's, some, there's something there. Right. And look, this is the perfect topic to talk about with Kat, because I would be uncomfortable explaining why I don't think Morgan Fairchild does it for me, <laughs> for Kat. But now, I, even though I know she's going to listen, I know she's not here to judge me in real time. So yes. she can internalize and whatever. But yes, <laughs> something about Morgan Fairchild just looks like uncanny valley. Yes. Like it's not quite right. Are her eyes too far apart or too close? Or is her nose mm -hmm. too small or too big? I don't know what it is. Uh, but she's, she has a, a, a very distinctive look right. and a very attractive look, but I, I wouldn't even put her on a list of of hot ladies of the right. 80s. Either. Yeah. I never thought about that. Oh. She's almost too symmetrical, too smooth. She looks like, right. I don't think she's had plastic surgery, Sharp but she angles. looks like she has. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, this is going to, look, we might as well just be as sexist as we want because nobody's listening. It's just you and me. That's fine. And if Kat's not on, none of the women that listen are on either, are listening either, so. Well, that's fine. Oh, so no one to be offended. Yes, that's exactly. cool. So here. It's a, it's a show for us, Will, this is, right? Yeah. It's us. And this is real, <laughs> for us, by us. This is really of misogynistic here or sexist, I think. I don't like how she does her makeup. It's just too much makeup. I'm a guy who likes mm. just natural beauty. I'm a guy who doesn't, I like just, you don't have to wear makeup for me, John. You specifically, John, you don't need any plastic surgery, any Thank you. augmentations, any implants. I like, take you as you come. That's the truly most Beautiful. This is a terrible episode. What is this? What are we doing here? No. Uh, gonna, what do you think about that? I'm going to cancel my scheduled BBL then. I'm not going to go forward with that. <laughs> See, we need Kat because she wouldn't know what that stood for. I know. That's, but it, it's still great because she's listening and she doesn't know okay. right now listening. Right. And she's going to go, what is that? Right. And she'll have to pause and go to Google and be embarrassed. And then she'll mm -hmm. message us. It's perfect. It yeah. is a show for us, oh. but we're going to get the benefit later when she hears it. So maybe we're really doing this show for Kat. That's how we keep the show, keep the spark alive here. We know Kat's listening. Okay, good. Yes. That's what I'm, that's what I'm All always right. doing when she's here or not. So, so. you put off your bumble, <laughs> your bumble. I'm going to, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to cancel my BBL schedule. I did that. He's doing it right now. I can see him typing something. Hey, number nine is Brooke Shields. Hmm. What are you, what are your thoughts? I, I think she's almost in the Morgan Fairchild category for a different reason. I mean, she's doesn't have that angular look. Morgan Fairchild is beautiful, but she doesn't have that crafted in a lab look like Morgan Fairchild, but she's just something about her that. I feel disc I don't connect to. So look, we've established what we're doing here. You don't have to keep backpedaling and going, now beautiful, but <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Right. We get, right? right. Brooke Shields <laughs> in the same way, very angular, mm. very attractive. Her face has always looked young to me, like younger than her ears. Mm. But the thing that, the thing I can't get over with Brooke Shields is the unibrow. Oh. Is the, is oh. the, the heavy, the heavy, the super dark. And mm. it's got to be augmented with makeup because no one has, maybe, I don't know, but- yeah, that, and, and and being a model and an actress, it mm -hmm. always surprised me that they didn't say, "Hey, let's t let's you know let's tame the mane a little bit, let's mm -hmm. do something with those." They just they just they're, they're as tall as her eyes, and I was like, hmm, "Okay, <laughs> tall as her they eyes. are." Look That's at funny. look at a picture. Mm -hmm. It's, you, know, you know, there's the drawing chart when you draw a face, yeah. like you, you draw an oval, you, you put the right. eyes in the middle or whatever. Well, on that chart yeah. for Brooke Shields, the eyes and the brows, same height. <laughs> I know that's one of those uh, Da Vinci measurements, right? The golden, uh, whatever. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, I Look, I actually like a heavy eyebrow myself on a lady. Uh, didn't okay. notice that they All connected right. necessarily what you're saying. So that doesn't bother me. But yeah, there's... 
<laughs> I don't know. And to you know, you said about she always looked young. It was controversial when she first came on the scene and started getting roles because she started very young. And some of the roles she had, mm-hmm. you know, were, uh, you know, were, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe she was too young to play some of those roles. And, and she took a break and she went to Princeton and, you know, she came back and she was started to work again. But um, anyway, so she, she, she's older than we are, but she always, yeah, I agree with you. It's because I think a lot of times she was in those films. She was, she probably shouldn't have been. What was that that Blue Lagoon or whatever? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think, of, I think of her always in that film. Yeah. Because in that film, I, I don't know how old she was, clearly very young, but even her character was just like finishing puberty. Right. Like she was so young right. and she shouldn't have been in that situation, but whatever it was, a shipwreck, I don't know yeah. what it was, but yeah. How did that movie even get made? That's a weird movie. Does anybody still watch that movie? You can't watch that movie. You can't, it's too uncomfortable. Uh, number eight's Kim Basinger. Basinger? Basinger. Say it however you like. Yeah, we could probably tear through these because I'm going to say, yeah, same. Physically attractive. I just, I don't know. I'm curious to see as you go through this list yeah. because the first two- I mean, Brooke Shields, better than Morgan Fairchild. Mm-hmm. Kim Basinger, yeah. better than Brooke Shields. So maybe you're working your way up because yeah. Kim Basinger is is less of all those things, less manufactured, less super symmetrical, less angular, less youthful looking. Mm-hmm. I don't mean that negatively. I mean, yes, childish looking, I guess is yeah, what I'm yeah. saying, kind of how Brooke Shields was always young. So yeah, so you're you're working your way up. The, I'm, I can't wait to see what number one is. I'm going to have to take a breather. I think what I'm, <laughs> and I didn't create this list. This is from uh, Watch Mojo. Okay. And I'll throw in what I think right. should have been on the list or, or not. But, you know, I think for me, what it's coming okay. down to, talking about uh, male, uh, I don't know if this is, ultimately talking about ma- male role models or fictional male role models. We're going to be talking about, you know, how we identify with certain traits or aspire to, you know, have similar traits to some of the folks that we admired in, in 1980s or, or before, my, uh, some, sure. many of mine before that, but from our, our, our lives. And I think what I'm realizing is, however I grew up or was informed, I'm looking for an emotional connection. So unlike maybe identifying with these, you know, the, the machismo, the, the characters, the macho characters of uh, the earlier 1980s and certainly throughout most of the 1980s, this would be a more feminine, you know, sort of a more, what we'd a more feminine trait is that part of my being attracted to them is feeling I can connect with them and a lot of them, and maybe, maybe it's an aspect of their beauty, but Kim Basinger is getting closer, I think, because there's something about her personality mm-hmm. too that in her films where she seems more natural and grassroots, you know, kind of earthy and oh uh, I, I agree and I'm, I'm willing to state that probably fully 70 percent of my attitude toward these actresses has to do with the roles I have seen them in yeah. not how much I know about their actual personalities so right. just serendipitously whatever roles you happen to get if they if I connect with the role I probably find the actress right. more appealing uh Michelle yep. Pfeiffer is number seven mm. oh that's working that's working <laughs> I think she is is lovely she's on, on the bubble between classic beauty and and a, a more natural beauty. And I always, and she has a striking eye line. And mm-hmm. just, I always think of her as uh, Isabeau in- ha- uh, Lady Hawk. Lady Hawk, exactly. Yeah. Soundtrack by Alan Parsons, just FYI. But <laughs> in that where she's, she is in, in a role where she is a stronger woman. She's dealing with adver- adversity. And yeah, Michelle Pfeiffer, that film especially, if I think of her, I think of her in that role. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. We're getting there. I don't know. She's gorgeous. And yeah, something about her personality. I find very attractive. Uh, number six is Heather Locklear. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing against Heather Locklear. I, 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 she's beautiful. I just never found her mm-hmm. that, you know, she wasn't my cup of tea. She's a knockout. She's very modely. Super, yeah. super symmetrical. I mean, the, the Ford company is looking for her, right? I yes. mean, that's, that's the look they're, they're, they're pulling for. I watched her on her shows that she was on. Love TJ Hooker. But uh, yeah, no. Didn't do it for me. Uh, number five is Phoebe mm-hmm. Cates. Now, I know why she made this list, probably. Yeah. But uh, other than Fast Times at Ridgemont High, where she bears her naked breasts, mm-hmm. uh, that in Gremlins, I can't think of another thing she's appeared in. So 
but again, physically beauty, beautiful. I don't know that I have enough, have, have enough experience with her sort of even on fictionally to yeah. feel she's doing it for me. It's definitely the roles are taking effect here because objectively beautiful young lady, mm-hmm. I have no particular affinity for her necessarily. I think it's because I don't have a connection. I don't have an avenue in. This is a person not in my world unless I have a role that I relate to that I connect with. Yeah. Probably not going to do it for me. So, yeah. This, you know, I realize this is, as we get closer to the end here, I'm realizing that's what it's coming down to. Like you're saying, the first time we saw them in movies or the first time they made an impression or the, the thing that made the most mm-hmm. impression on us is the one that sort of stays right. with us. I think so. Yeah. Number four, Vanessa Williams. Now, she didn't do a whole lot of acting in the 1980s. Of course, she's most well known for being mm-hmm. the first African American woman woman to to win to be Miss America. Miss America, right? Yeah. A title she lost for something that wouldn't lose anything for anybody today. She apparently had posed for some nude photos prior to that. Mm-hmm. It's just yep. it's shocking that yep. <laughs> a beauty contest that lauds people for their <laughs> beauty. And let's face it, they wear those bikinis just because they can't show nipples on TV. It, it clearly. It's objectifying you in the first place to see how, you know, just symmetrically, perfectly attractive you are. And if you then had previously taken advantage of your beauty, well, then you're disqualified. That was, that was, that was BS. Yeah, Yeah, that was dumb. Uh, She's, I think most of the 1980s, she spent singing, really. Uh, She was in some, certainly in some films and TV shows and and more Mm -hmm. so in the 90s. Gorgeous woman. I put her on like Kim Basinger par myself. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, I think she's ranks higher to me than most of the folks on this list, but yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Number three, Kelly LeBrock. Sold. That's it. End of the list. You, you may have some more on the list, but yeah. Kelly LeBrock is right near the top. I agree. And it's because of weird science. Mm-hmm. It's because of that role where she is taking control of the situation yeah. with her femininity and mm-hmm. with her sexuality. You know, she's bowing to nobody. That's her identity. I and mean, she's an artificial person or whatever, but mm-hmm. still in that role, she was powerful and it just struck a chord and- and other things simultaneously. <laughs> what, did she? Did it strike a chord or other things? Or did you strike some of those things over and over? Right. I think it was an F sharp sproing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, F sharp. And people were knocking on the door. John, stop striking it. <laughs> I'm watching weird science. Leave me alone. I agree for all those reasons. Uh, yeah, and I guess maybe yeah. we're attracted to strong women. There was something about... She's like sexy Mary Poppins in that movie. She's got all the power. She's magical. I can see now even John Hughes thinking that, right? That they, the, the boys- Sexy Mary Poppins. Gary and Wyatt need something. So she appears, she does all her things, and then she disappears. And she goes, you know, presumably off to help somebody else. And we see her at the end in this little tag, uh, teaching Jim at the high school now. Physically beautiful and something on a base level again. Mm-hmm. All the reasons you said, plus there's just some animal magnetism, yep. I guess. 100%. Number two, Madonna. Now, I don't agree she should be higher than Kelly LeBrock, but she's the number two on Watch Mojo's list. I don't know what Watch Mojo was drinking, but I wouldn't even put her on the list. I think it's because, Mm -hmm. again, it's the personality avenue. Like, objectively beautiful. Look at the, like, the album cover for True Blue, Mm -hmm. right? It's it's a model pose, right? She's, She's looking up to the sky and just that, the beautiful features. It's all there, but I never cared for the commercial personality of Madonna. Her music was okay. Not yeah. my favorite, but something about it always felt a little bit highbrow and a little not for the common person. And that's what I attribute to Madonna. Yeah. She elevated herself out of the range of who I would consider attractive people. <laughs> she did it to herself. She did. Take that, Madonna. I'm sure she's uh, torn up about it. Yeah, probably. I think I disagree with you. And only because, you know, oh, so my okay. first exposure to her, I'm thinking about, like you said, album covers. So her first Madonna and mm-hmm. then like a virgin, you know, seeing her dancing on MTV and, uh, Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. And I don't want to say something that I think maybe even sounds worse than what we've been saying so far. 
Go for it. But Kat's not here. Okay. And I, I think to say it maybe in a way that sounds more uh, palatable, it's like, and tied to the Kelly LeBrock thing is, now, look, at the time I didn't realize this, but I think I was attracted to the women and the characters that were, seemed strong, powerful, and uh, in all areas, including sexually, like sexually independent. I remember when mm-hmm. we were kids, as is true today, this idea of, for lack of a better word, phrase, or a phrase you'll look you know, it's sort of a terrible turn of phrase, but slut shaming. You know, that was a thing when we were kids. It's true today. I was never anybody who bought into that idea. I thought anybody who felt mm-hmm. as amorous as I do at 13, 14 years old, you're all right. I get it. And also, <laughs> hey, if you're willing to make out with me, am I going to judge you? I mean, wh- wh- what's this? So <laughs> God my, bless you for doing it. And Madonna seemed like that, again, sort of, you know, again, part, that was part of her uh, brand was being that, you know, and certainly later as her career evolved, that the person mm. who was, you know, strong and uh, sexually independent, or I don't know if that's the right phrase. All right. So- was that the, there's still one more on your list? Is that right? Yeah. So before you tell me the last one on the list, yep. Because it it connects directly to this, and over on Gen X Grown Up, we just did an episode about the 40th anniversary of War Games, and okay. so Ali Sheedy mm-hmm. in that film does all of the things that you just said, and we talked about it on the show there, okay. where she is aggressively trying to seduce Matthew Broderick's character throughout, certainly throughout the half third of the film, right? She's making him very uncomfortable. She's like trapping him in his room by putting her legs on either side of the bed so he can't get by and he feels really awkward. (laughs) But it made it, it made her all the more attractive because she owned her sexuality. Mm -hmm. She knew what she wanted and she was going for it unashamedly. And that's something that, especially women in the 80s, would be slut shamed for, oh, you are supposed to be shy and demure and wait until a man comes for you. And Ali Sheedy in that film did not. She did the opposite of that. Right. And for all the same reasons that we talked about why Madonna resonated with you, and I think Ali Sheedy in that film for me is mm-hmm. that attractive is fine, but attractive is not enough, right? They, they talk about, you know, <laughs> you look great, but what, what are you on the inside? And that might be trite, but it's true. It's, mm-hmm. if there's, if there's nothing, there's no substance there you can connect with. You know, the looks only get you so far. So maybe the one thing that's sort of a through line to all these is having a strong sense of self, you know, self-confidence, identity. Mm-hmm. You know who you are. You're not ashamed of who you are. So whether that's being sexually, because you're sexually experienced or uh, that's the only thing I'm focusing on right now. So words are escaping me. Uh, whatever it is, maybe that seems right. I mean, <laughs> kind of a thing. And not to say anything on any other characters, because there's other reasons or, or, or uh, right. Women that we mentioned, but or on the flip side, if you have a character who is not sexually active or even a virgin, yeah. but isn't ashamed of that, right? Right. The same, mm-hmm. the same kind of thing w- would work. It's just that you're not like, oh, I don't want to tell anybody, but just be who right. you are. Yeah, fly your flag, and th- that is so attractive. Yeah, yeah, that that doubles whatever physical attractiveness you have. Yeah, because you remind me a lot of, you know, the the, the Madonnas and Kelly LeBrocks aside, oftentimes the characters represented on film that I was most attracted to are those girl next doors that were just. Mm-hmm. You know, like you're like you're describing Ali Sheedy almost, except maybe it doesn't have to be as forward even. Um, like Boof in mm-hmm. Teen Wolf, uh, Susan or City. Uh, yep. I thought, you know, that, why doesn't he want to be with her instead of this other, you know. Hey, what's he thinking? Yeah. So, <laughs> hmm. but again, there it comes down to the idea. It's a sh- strong, confident person, I guess, in whoever you are. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Number one yeah. is Christy Brinkley. Hmm. Doesn't beat out Kelly LeBrock for me. Yeah, me neither. Very modely again, mm-hmm. very almost too perfect, too angular, piercing gaze. She did what to the who? You you heard me. Arrest her. <laughs> she has a piercing gaze. G A Z E. Okay. Let me make sure I'm clear. Hate crime. No, no. 
No, I would never accuse her of that. Model gorgeous. Again, the Ford company's looking for her, but yeah. other than, I guess, vacation, I wouldn't right. have seen her do anything really uh, that would give me a personality to attach her beauty to and be able to right. elevate or diminish it. So. Yeah, I agree with you. But for wanting to go swimming with her at that in that scene yeah. uh, in the pool, this is crazy, this is crazy, <laughs> this is crazy. Right, and that's just pure animalistic basal urge. That's not actually- yeah observing the beauty necessarily. So, yeah. so I, I, I would dismiss that. I wouldn't bypass it. I would go for it, but I would not dis, I would dismiss it as being an, a way to define her, her beauty or attractiveness. I think missing from this list and for all the reasons that we said should be considered, uh, Rebecca DeMornay, uh, in risky business, okay. I was in love. Were she you? could have all my furniture. <laughs> Sean Young in anything I saw her in, was it Blade Runner yeah. or No Way Out? Sure. Uh, and uh, instead of Heather Locklear, I would have swapped in Heather Thomas. Heather Thomas. Sure. Heather Thomas, much more girl next door, I would argue. Yeah. Girl next door who was sunbathing in a bikini uh, because I had that poster, as I mentioned before. <laughs> and actually, you know, I did have a girl next door that was suntanning in a bikini. Really? I mean, How did you get anything done? Uh, that is for another story, John. As Fair you say, enough. oftentimes, okay. it's another story. We'll save it for another It time. is. All right. Hey. There's always, there's always tomorrow. I don't know what that was, but you know what? I'm going to add something in that says, uh, since Kat's not here, it's time for us to, and I'll press the button. Like, oh, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> I was trying to find that right before we uh, got on. And the, <laughs> so I Googled like <laughs> woman uh, pleasure sound or something like that. And the things that came up was Did nothing you? I could use and feel comfortable about. Woman pleasure sound. Oh, chocolate. Uh, what is, what are the sounds yeah. going to be? Uh, Just like, oh, ooh. I don't know. But what came up, the files, like the top five files, and I didn't go past that, were like woman orgasm sounds. Oh my. And most of them said some variation of that. And and I thought, well, maybe one of those will work. But the most alarming to me, thing to me about those files were, they were like each 10 minutes long. <laughs> And I suddenly felt very inferior as a man. So was it a was it a, a compilation of sounds or was it one sample that ran 10 minutes long? In which case, I also fear, feel quite inferior. Yeah. I, I didn't click. I didn't want to click. I didn't want to know. I know what not to search for. Yeah, don't do that. But something was in there earlier. All right. Hey, let's move on with the show and get caught up on mm-hmm. 1980s news. During an extensive uh, interview with Hollywood Reporter, Arnold Schwarzenegger gave an up, gave up, <laughs> gave an update, or several updates on potential sequels to three beloved 1980s movies, some of which are franchises. Mm-hmm. First, right. James Hibbard, uh, the uh, interviewer, asked Schwarzenegger whether the Terminator franchise is done, noting, "quote It feels done." Mm. But per Schwarzenegger, he said, "The franchise is not done. I'm done. I got the message loud and clear that the world wants to move on with a different theme." The first three movies were great. Five and six were just not well written. End quote. I feel done with Terminator. I mean, and maybe it's because the last, let's see, three, four, five, six, four films have sucked. I'm a Terminator apologist. Oh. I'll even defend Genesis if I have to. Okay. Not because it's great, but because I have so much love for the Terminator franchise that I developed around the first one, the second one, and even the third one, which... I would oh, argue that's, is that's the, worst, the worst of the first three, but it has elements that are really cool that didn't get executed on perfectly. But I think the, we're beyond the uh, figuring out how to explain why the Terminator looks like he's aged. I mean, they mm-hmm. did explain it several times in different ways. They found ways to get around it. You know, they had him living there in his whatever, but yeah. they tried it with the Sarah Connor Chronicles, which was an interesting way to explore that universe, but it was missing the spectacle 
that you're accustomed to with Terminator films as a series. I didn't watch that. Was there a no. Terminator in it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Um, Summer Glau, I think is her, her name, the actress that was in Firefly. She oh, yeah. played okay. a Terminator the whole way through. And so against type, rather than being a big buff heroic guy, she's a mm-hmm. very thin, like a rail thin, I mean, athletic young woman, but yeah. she did not look like a machine, right? She was, mm-hmm. she was slim and no one expected her to be it's like the bionic woman, right? You no one expects yeah. her to be able to run that fast or lift things or do whatever. And she could. Huh? Well, unlike yeah. you, I mean, I've seen them all. Yep. I'm always hopeful. They'll be good. I actually did yeah. like Genesis in the sense that conceptually it was a really cool idea. Mm-hmm. You know, let's see what actually happened in the future. Yep. I, I think for the most part, that's probably my next favorite one after the James Cameron ones. Three, I thought was terrible. Really? Uh, and then actually the most recent one wasn't too bad either where they, you know, that could be, that's maybe a better sequel to Terminator 2. That was supposed to be. Than any others have been. I think yeah. Cameron was basically saying, this is the third film, forget the old third film. And uh, Oh, right. That was the, the hope, but I mean, we can't, you know, you can't unring that bell. I didn't look it up uh, for, for our chat today, but I did see something recently that James Cameron is interested in coming back and writing and directing the next one and try to get it back on track. Mm. But I don't even know if that would could do it for me, but. I would be there. All you have to do is put Bigfoot or Terminator in a movie and I'm there. So, so he's there. Yep. Uh, next Hibbert asked Schwarzenegger, whether there was any update on triplets. If you remember triplets is, was the, uh, in development sequel to twins mm-hmm. that Ivan Reitman was really excited about and attached to direct until he unfortunately died, uh, just last year. Uh, with regard to that, Schwarzenegger said, Jason Reitman fucked it up. <laughs> <laughs> Not to put too fine a point on it. He continues, Jason Reitman literally stopped the project when his father died. Jason said, I never liked the idea and put a hold on it, end quote. Mm. If you remember, of course, the original Twins was released in 1988, starring Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito. They were both set to return for this uh, triplets, and uh, Tracy Morgan, who replaced Eddie Murphy, was also set to star in the film. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's fine. I'm, I'm fine with that. Whatever. Twins is good, but... I don't know. I don't need more of Of these in the article, this is the one I least care if it happens. And finally, with regard to a long-promised third film in the Conan series, Mm. Schwarzenegger said, uh, it's been pending for the last 10 years. Frederick Malmberg owns the rights. He comes to me and says, oh, I have a deal with Netflix. And then we ask Netflix, and they say (laughs) they don't know anything about it. Uh, The story's there. There are directors who want to do it, but Malmberg... Malmberg has the rights. And until he sells the rights for one or two movies or for the whole franchise, there's nothing you could do about it. End quote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was been teased for a long time. I'm not so familiar with the Conan sort of the stories, except for the films. Uh, but I know there is a story, maybe it's based on the comics that have since come, or maybe it's based on the original books, but uh, where there's an older Conan char- character, mm-hmm. King Conan, and he was supposed to play, he's the appropriate age now to play that character. And it was, it sounded brilliant Mm -hmm. and it was going to be a series, much like we have a lot of these series that can really flesh out stories. But two things about this that make me really excited and probably the one I most hope, even above Terminator, I hope this would happen for Conan. And that is, and I mentioned a few times on the show where I've talked about, I love the trend of coming back to a franchise 20 or 30 years later with the actors, Mm -hmm. the right age to have aged the characters and see what they're doing now. And so I don't want to reboot. I don't want to remake. I don't want to let's pretend everybody's young and de-age them. And he even says in this article, the thing that most excites me about what Schwarzenegger sees for a Conan film is the model from Unforgiven. Mm. The Clint Eastwood Western is my all time favorite Western film, not on its own, but because it takes effectively the whole career of Clint Eastwood playing this cowboy hero and looking at what his life is like in his in his twilight years. 
and it is just, mm-hmm. mm, it's impeccable. It is such a good, it's heart-wrenching. And why? Because we're older and we get it. We get what it's like to have mm. this life in your youth and then have to come back and either answer for it or atone for it or to pay for it. Right. And to put Conan in that spot, oh man, right. fantastic. I thought this was interesting. Thinking about uh, what kicked off Schwarzenegger's, really, his career. I didn't know this, but the the uh, the author asks him or says to Schwarzenegger, you've described your dad's abuse for, as fuel for self-improvement. You became so big and so strong that nobody could ever hurt you again. Mm. Uh, but you can't do that to a kid and have it only result in positive motivation. It had to have some negative impact on you too. Schwarzenegger says, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. It's like in Conan when uh, James Earl Jones, as Tulsa Doom mm. says, why do you want to kill me? I created you. He killed Conan's parents. He created the fire in his belly, which is why Conan became the warrior, became the king. He was the spring well of my strength. So I can look at it in a negative way and dwell on that, or I can go, but the good thing is, was there anything negative left over? Maybe, I don't know. Hmm. And thinking about male role models, and this again, we're not talking about machismo because we did that once before, but mm-hmm. the cycle that you know is created, and not to say Schwarzenegger is a bad father or, or abusive by any means, but the fact that he felt the need to become this mountain of muscle mm-hmm. is because someone hurt him. Yeah, I mean, th- there's certainly a defense mechanism kicking in there. I, I, reading between the lines, I think you could, I think you could probably uh, surmise that there is some negative remaining impact on him, but not something being such a positive force that Schwarzenegger kind of always has been, and really more has become in his later years. I could see him not wanting to dwell on it, though. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's going to leave a lasting impact. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> And just a small plug for our buddy, John Walsh, the author, he's got a Conan the Barbarian official story of the film book coming out in August. And uh, we'll probably talk to him. Ah, there you go. There we go. Had to plug uh, some celebrity you knew, the author, John Walsh. Well I done. thought, <laughs> I thought sure. I thought for sure Vernon Wells earlier was going to, was going to get me a, a yellow card. Yeah. Well, only because um, I missed it. <laughs> we should, <laughs> we should score this. All right. There you go. One me, one you. All right. Hey, also uh, reported by the Hollywood Reporter. Dana wouldn't let Robin appear in Saturday Night Live sketch. So if you were a fan of Saturday Night Live in the 1980s mm-hmm. like me. Sure, who wasn't? I'm, I don't think I missed any. You know, we had this thing in my family where when I was too young to stay up for mm-hmm. it, which was a good portion of the 80s, we would record it on our VHS really? or before that our beta. <laughs> and we would watch it on Sunday morning after breakfast, you know, or with donuts or whatever. Um, but uh, again, if you were a fan, you remember when Dana Carvey was on. Because uh, one of the, and one of the, one of the most, I guess, uh, sort of uh, outstanding or sort of memorable cr- characters she created was the church lady, you know, that elderly. Isn't that special? <laughs> pious uh, mm-hmm. woman, uh, Enid Strict. Uh, she debuted in 1986 during uh, his first s- season on the sketch show. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was a hit. She was huge. Yeah. yeah I remember yeah, in yeah. The elementary school, we were doing all those quotes. Right. What was the and other th- one? So, who could it be? Satan. Right. And there, yeah. it was one of those, as you said, out of the gate winners. I remember probably that year or the next year, there were already t-shirts and hats and bumper stickers and stuff with those catchphrases because Carvey just epitomized yeah. a stereotype that had not really been represented by a single entity on TV before. And he did it so well, you know, <laughs> like everybody knows that person, Suddenly, oh, uh, but they didn't have a commonality yeah. to just cling to. And now they're like, that's her, the church lady. Right. I knew those people. And so, and suddenly those people <laughs> were like, I'm seen finally. <laughs> yes. Hollywood is filled with sinners. <laughs> they, they get it. They finally get it. Yeah. So, during a recent episode of his uh, Fly on the Wall podcast, uh, which he co-hosts with uh, fellow SNL alum, David Spade. Stupid celebrity podcast. Get out of the space. Yeah, 
I actually did listen to this one for a few episodes because they, they you're wanted, part of the problem, Will. You can't listen to them. <laughs> I'm teaching the AI conceptually. They, I mean, or at least the initial concept uh-huh. team that they were going to speak to folks that were involved in Saturday Night Live. So mm-hmm. maybe they have done that entirely so far. So if they were, if you were a host or a writer, producer, uh, actor, uh, that might not. They may not be sticking that entirely in, mm-hmm. but that's. But it's been overwhelmingly, and that's uh, that's what drew my interest. Anyway, on that show, Carvey recently revealed that one of the times that Oscar-winning actor Robin Williams hosted the show, he called Carvey and asked him to be included in a church lady sketch. But Carvey said he had to decline, which was difficult for him. How could you do that? How could you? Look, anything I'm working on, if one of my heroes comes up and goes, hey, I want to be a part of one of these. And, 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 and as we get through the article, we understand you'll explain why, but those reasons don't hold water for me. I'm like, I can't believe he didn't take a shot. Yeah. You know, <laughs> huh. And you make, you remind me that, so they're both from San Francisco. They both started there in the comedy clubs. Robin Williams, I, I'm guessing was a little bit older than Dana Carvey only because maybe not. Dana Carvey was, uh, was, was appearing on TV shows in small parts early in the 1980s, like okay. earlier than we you know, mm-hmm, sort of mm-hmm. knew him to be Dana Carvey. And certainly Robin Williams was a big hit at the late end of the 1970s with Mork and had been a hit in the comedy clubs. So I'm wondering if they, they, he wasn't a hero in that regard because they were you know, peers. It was contemporary. So it'd be mm-hmm. more, okay. a better analogy would be a fellow podcaster. You know. Gotcha. Uh, yep. I don't know. But for Carvey, for us, yeah, I agree with you. For Carvey, he said, quote, he was a really good friend, but he really wanted to do church chat. Um, and this was in the early days. This was my golden ticket. And I was very careful. I thought if Robin got so excited, I was just afraid of it. <laughs> it was heartbreaking. But, you know, we got past that and we were friends. But in those days, your thing, your character was very precious. I wanted to keep it quasi real in a sense. Uh, I agree with you. There's lots of holes in this. Yeah. Even if it went off the rails and Robin Williams took over the sketch, yeah. how memorable would that be? And mm-hmm. how much more would people talk about the church lady than they already were? I can't imagine a scenario. A, Robin Williams, as manic as he was and as crazy brilliant as he was, he was still respectful of other comics. He would not have, have damaged the sketch or damaged the character. I, I just feel like it was Dana Carvey. Look, he was, who knows, I don't know how long this was into his run on SNL. Maybe he's just afraid. He didn't want to, you know, was, chase the golden goose. Yeah. He was afraid, well, if he tried to make it too funny, he's going to go over the edge and he'll lose the magic that he had because he got so lucky out of the gate. Yeah. So uh, Carvey started in 86 and I looked it up. Uh, Robin Williams hosted it three times, but the first time was before Carvey was on. So that doesn't count. And then he hosted it. So he hosted it in November of 86 and January of 88. So it could have been either of those two times okay. Carvey didn't specify. So That's it could have right. been the first year he did it or he'd been two years into his, you know, mm-hmm. only two years into his uh, run there. Now, if you were Carvey in that situation, yeah. let's assume it's the, t- the 2008, you're two years in. Let's give Dana yeah. Carvey... The benefit of the doubt, right? Mm-hmm. Put yourself in those those shoes and Robin Williams wants to be on your sketch. Can you find a reason not to? I agree with you. And even in our small way here. Yeah. And I think part of it's just a sense of maturity. So I don't know how old Dana Carvey was then, but because he's older than we are. But in, in the 80s, you know, he, at that time he was on the show, maybe he was in his 30s or so, you know, or, or, or late 20s. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I feel like earlier in my life, uh, and certainly when I did theater, when I was starting out, you know, in the 90s and- and things since, I think I was more vulnerable to feeling uh, envious of people or concerned that they would somehow steal my spotlight or my upstaged or you my something. Idea. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Now I have Gen X grown ups host on my show and I don't worry about it at all. And it's not because he's a lesser talent than I am, which is true also, but it's just because. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> if he finally gets his shit together, 
I, I would, I'll be happy for him. <laughs> I was about to be super complimentary and nice to you. And now I, I don't know I'll if I can again. get there. Take two. I don't know if Take I can two. get there. No, but yeah. now I look now, you know, and yeah. I learned this from you, John, cause you invited me on your show before I invited you on my show. That's right. And you said, I look for folks to help, to collaborate with, you know, we lifts, you know, lift all tide lifts, all boats kind of thing. Yep. And I remember you said that. And then that's what my, all my efforts to find other folks to do that kind of similar thing too. I don't feel threatened anymore. I feel like the better we all do, you know, any of us does is great for everybody. And that's what I was going to reference. I mean, so I'm trying to map myself. I don't know whether I'm Carvey or Robin Williams here. It doesn't matter. The point is when I had you on my show years ago, before we first met, I respected you. I respected your show, never having met you just from the caliber of work that you did. And I'm like, I was not afraid to have you on the show. I'm like, oh no, he's going to see what a train wreck we are. No, I'm like, I want that guy. I want that guy in my orbit. I want to be in that guy's orbit. I want to be in the circles where that is happening. And so I guess it's not quite a direct analogy map because Dana Carvey was going to be Dana Carvey no matter what happens, Robin Williams, but game recognized game. If you see someone else that can Mm -hmm. elevate you, as you said, don't run from it. You got to use it. You got to use it. Take advantage of it. Jump in. Yeah forge ahead because that's a missed opportunity. I can't imagine a scenario where it would have damaged that character. And it probably was due to his youth, a malady that you and I no longer suffer. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's a little hard to have that young perspective anymore. But yes. Not a problem. <laughs> I agree with you. And in the very least, the alchemy, you know, that would have happened between the mm. two of them on stage. Yeah. Carvey might've learned something about the character that he did not otherwise see, you know? That's a great and, insight. Um, I didn't even consider, but yeah, who knows what could have come out of it. It could have grown the character. Robin Williams could have introduced another catchphrase that would have stuck forever and <laughs> elevated the character. You don't know. Right. Road not taken. Yeah. And this, this idea that he said he wanted to keep it quasi real, <laughs> the show, the character no. was absurd. There, there was nothing real about the character. I mean, except for you saying, we know that, you know, uh, what, what the paradigm, I guess is the word or the, what they were parodying. Parod- mm-hmm. I can't ever say that. Parodying. That's right. You got it. But, got but it. it was still a parody, Dana. Oh, we sure. love you, but come on. All right. Hey, and finally, in, in, in 1980s news, uh, we've got several Ghostbusters uh, sequel, uh, Afterlife sequel updates. Whoop. Earlier this year at CinemaCon, Sony shared footage from the set of the new Ghostbusters movie. It uh, featured the director, uh, Gil Cannon, uh, Jason Reitman, who's a writer and producer, mm-hmm. as well as the, you know, the core uh, rest of the cast from Afterlife that, have, that are coming over uh, to the new film. New film. And they were dressed in the uniforms mm-hmm. and the video revealed that they would be, quote, living under one roof in the New York in New York at the Ghostbusters firehouse. So it makes sense that uh, just a a Ghostbusters day on June 8th, the official Ghostbusters account reminded us on Twitter that the code name of the new film is firehouse. Now we had seen this in an image from uh, March on a set photo. It was on the, uh, Mm -hmm. is that the The clapboard? Yeah. The clapboard. Yep. Um, The slate, how they slate the films. It was on there, but now they said it official. It's code name Firehouse. Whether that's the real title or it's a working title like Blue Harvest was for Star Wars or right. Rust City was for the for Ghostbusters Afterlife, we don't know. But it just confirms how central that place is to the film. I think it would be a great title. I mean, yeah. based on what we know from Afterlife and we know that, mm-hmm. that Winston is busy resurrecting the firehouse and stuff. And for that to be right. a central focus, I think it's a, I, I would mm-hmm. be surprised if they change the name at this point, I bet they go with it because it's not, it's not a nebulous title like a blue harvest, right? It's actually, mm-hmm. I think it applies really, really well. And, and I wonder if there's some deeper meaning to it. And here's why I ask, because while that seems pretty straightforward, mm-hmm. it's curious that on the same day, uh, Ghostbusters day, that was just a couple of like a week ago, Kenan Reitman and just about everybody that on the film helped reveal a teaser poster that they mm-hmm. later sent out on their Twitter account that showcased a new take on the classic a logo for the films. 
But this time, the ghost, you know, the ghost that has the slash through it, the no ghost symbol. Right. It seems frozen. Like it has yeah. maybe ice. Like it's it almost seems like it's in motion flying. Right. And the ice is sort of freezing right. as it. Like icicles know, have frozen on it, it as it's hurtling toward the earth or something. Like the icicles are yeah. kind of going off at a like 45 degree angle to the northeast of the logo. Mm-hmm. And, and I see where you're going with that. You're like, so is it a fire and ice situation? Is there some right. kind of spirit we're dealing with that has, uh, that has weather effects or something that, mm-hmm. yeah, which we haven't seen before or done before in the Ghostbusters universe. So that would be awesome. Yeah. Is it some sort of icy threat that the antidote is fire? So mm-hmm. we get it from the firehouse. Yeah. Now, of course the, the firehouse, this potentially titular firehouse isn't a firehouse with the Ghostbusters, a repurposed firehouse as far as the story goes. Sorry, I feel like I'm gonna burp. Thank you. <laughs> hey, it's an all dude show. Just burp on the mic. It doesn't matter. Yeah, there you go. Oh yeah, you don't have to wait. It's gonna pick up and fart. I've been doing that all through the show. <laughs> SBD. SBD. Yeah, <laughs> SBD. Not to be confused with with That's with a, with a BBL. BBL. <laughs> totally yeah, different. Now wait, oh, yeah. they both do cause vibrations, yeah. but that's totally different the causality. Now I feel like I have to leave me burping in the show just to get that all in there so Kat can learn some things. You may have to do a pickup burp and edit it in just to make this all make sense. I'm gonna where I get where I get the woman orgasm sounds. They may have a guy burping <laughs> for ten minutes. A ten minute burp. A B C D E F G. <laughs> ten frames. So speaking of firehouses, uh, just a few days later. After mm-hmm. a Ghostbusters day, that is. Reitman shared a new Instagram story in which he peers, appears outside Tribeca's Hook and Ladder 8, mm-hmm. which is the, has, has, you know, since the original film has played the uh, exterior of the Ghostbusters headquarters uh, right. there in New York City. Uh, it's a real location. It's a functioning firehouse. So I'm going to ask you a virtually rhetorical question. Yes. You've been there, right? Yes. Of course you have. I just make sure. It, it, it's a Mecca. If you go to Manhattan, you have to go. Yeah. So, you, so you've gone as well because you're a huge fan. Certainly. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The first time you go, it's a little disappointing yeah. because first <laughs> it's not the Ghostbusters scene, right? It's not the set yeah. anymore. It's a working firehouse, right. as you said. Um, right. And it's so much smaller than you think it's going to be because mm. it's in our minds, it's the Ghostbusters headquarters, right? It may as well be right. a Avengers tower, but it's right. this little like two or three story right on the corner of a block. Like it doesn't even take up even, I don't know what, a thousand square feet floor ground space. Yeah. It's not much. Yeah. It's really small. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tiny city block. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Where yeah. I, where I used to live in, in, in New Jersey, in Jersey city is right outside the Holland tunnel. And one way to get to the Holland tunnel, I would just, when I was downtown, I would just cut, well, the Holland tunnel is downtown. I guess. But depending where I was, I would cut right in front of that firehouse, like almost every time. So whenever I was with somebody who'd never been in New York before, I would, you know, pause there. <laughs> No big deal. Ghostbusters and right then, there. Yeah, keep yeah. driving, yeah. Yeah, so he was outside that. And, 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 and maybe because the uh, Ecto-1 has been spotted racing through the New York City streets over, uh, again, during that week of uh, Ghostbusters Day, doing second unit filming, it seems. And given the fact that Reitman was there, maybe he was there to assist somehow, maybe mm-hmm. direct some of that production or not. Finally, while the Tribeca Firehouse has served as the exterior of the Ghostbusters headquarters since the first film in 1984, as I mentioned, a recent video shared by Grace McKenna on TikTok shows off the set of the interior of the station. Yep. And it's a set. Yep. And wow, it looks identical to the decommissioned Los Angeles fire station, which I think is number 23, that served as the inside of the headquarters when they shot the original films. Yeah, I think I might have last week or so, I think I might have uh, sent you that TikTok from McKenna Grace yes. because- mm-hmm. 
it's more than just the interior. The interior is amazing. The exterior is amazing. Uh, but like she's, she's dancing around to some, I'm sure trendy TikTok song that I don't yeah, recognize, I, but she's running around and she's lip syncing to it. I'm like, sure, whatever. But it's probably the yeah. baby or somebody I don't know. Anyway, right. <laughs> she's out there running around Wait. and, and, and the streets and the asphalt and the cracks in the asphalt. And it's, mm-hmm. it's a full like city, like the intersection on the corner. Right. There's what they've recreated. And, but for the big sheets of green on the wall, the interior of the warehouse, you would not know you were not downtown of Manhattan. When I first saw it, I thought, oh, they're filming in Los Angeles again at that fire station. Cause I know it's still there. <laughs> right. There's been some controversy about uh, what to do with it over the last several years. Most recently they were, I want to say it was about 10 years ago, five years ago, they think they were going to turn it into a youth, youth art center there in Los hmm. Angeles. And okay. then- uh, that never happened. At one point, it was going to be demolished. At one point, it should be preserved. You know, mm-hmm. it's been used in a lot of films, in, including many from the 1980s. Well, at least a handful. And, uh, you'll recognize it as Egg Shen's uh, home in a Big Trouble in Little China. It's the inside of the Ghostbusters of Fire Station. Really? Um, mm, I did not know, you know that. When you look at it now, you're like, oh yeah, because you see the iconic big arch doors. Gotcha. That's how they get in there. Um, why was I saying all of that? Oh, but yeah, I was. So to see it in there, like to your point. When they, she comes out of it, like, oh, right, this is a soundstage? Yeah. Yeah. Holy cow. And yeah, even when she rounds that corner, it's like, oh, I, I was imagining it was just going to be more street going there because it seemed like, like right. they'll add it in later. And it doesn't it bode well for the franchise in general, but this film in particular, that that could have all been CGI. Mm, that's a good point, yeah. Or it could have all been on one of those digital Disney Mandalorian right. projection sets. It could have done all mm-hmm. that there. But somebody decided that Ghostbusters needs to be grounded enough in reality that they're going to build a large portion of it. Yeah. It's got to be right, man, because as you know, Afterlife, he did a lot of that too. Mm-hmm. On location, they used maquettes or, or puppets when they, you know, in animatronics as much as they could on set for the creatures. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of that was in camera. And thank goodness, because I remember the comment he made at the time was he's going to make it much like his father made it in the 1980s as he could, as practically good. good. Sony, yep. by the way, has been building out its Ghostbusters universe. We've also got an animated feature and an animated series in the works. Really? This sequel, whether it's going to be called Firehouse or something else, is set to do is due to come out, again, this is shocking, December 20th this year. Not to 2024, this year. I can't <laughs> believe that. But. It's got to slip. It's got to slip. There's no way. Uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Christmas is a good time to release a film, but- Look, they could say Christmas 2024 and I would be, yeah, I, I, it wouldn't sound irrational based on yeah. the, 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 the time it takes to, to get these things done. And I wouldn't feel like that's too long to wait. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. It makes sense to get it done and I'm fine. Mm-hmm. I could echo wait that yeah. long. I mean, I'm okay with it being this year. Totally fine. But right. It's surprising. Just, I don't know. Yeah. I might not be ready. I don't, they've had this experience. I've had this experience a few times. I can't give you a specific movie, but where I saw a movie all of a sudden that I wanted to see. Like okay. usually it's, hey, you want to go at this certain day or then we'll figure out a time. All right. So then I know 24 hours in advance. And I've also done last minute, hey, you want to go see a movie? But there's been some times where if I see the movie at an unexpected time, all of a sudden, and usually it's at someone else's, hey, you want to go? I'm going to see that, you know, Batman. Mm-hmm. You want to go see mm-hmm. Batman? Uh, yeah, sure. That when I see it, it seems like a dream. Like I'm not mentally prepared. <laughs> I think my body must otherwise do this thing where I'm like, I prepare ahead of time. Now I'm ready to receive the information on Thursday at uh, 7.30. Mm-hmm. That comes. I'm ready. Give me the information. It never, no, it, yes, yes. Yep. It never occurred to me to get a handle on it the way you have. But yes, I, I've had that feeling before. It's almost as if you need to format that part of your brain to then receive the data <laughs> for the film. 
Yes. And if you go and see it without having been formatted, then you just, you know, you get Uh it on a floppy disk and later you'll be ready to internalize it and think about it. And maybe not until you see it again the next time, right? Maybe. Because I just, I have, I'm not prepared to receive this data yet. Like there's no place Mm -hmm. to store it. Even just a day. Even like, want to see the movie tomorrow? Yeah. I went to see The Little Mermaid with my best friend when it first came out. Literally, it's like we were sitting around after school and we're like, what do you want to do? I don't know. Have you seen The Little Mermaid yet? No. Oh, let's go now. And we had to mm-hmm. go fast to get there because it was mm-hmm. just, we got there and there was no one else in the theater and they were about to not show it because no one showed up and we were the only <laughs> oh. two in the theater. And I still cannot remember watching the movie. It was more mm. the experience of going and sitting there and like and nobody else is here. And it was so weird. And that was back when theaters were always full. Right. Yeah. And it wasn't until I saw it again on video that I really remember watching it and, and capturing the movie. So yeah. I never quantified it as yeah, it's definitely a thing I've experienced. You, you're right. And part of that hurrying to get there and just making it, or you get there after it starts, which really upsets me. Oh, I, I no. Just, I almost zone I'm, out I'll, after that. I'll just leave. If I miss yeah. the beginning, well, I'll just leave. Yeah. If I'm with people, then I can't. But if I was by myself, I would, yeah. But yeah. Oh, all right, cool. So I'm not crazy. All right. <laughs> no. Hey, that was 1980s news. That's why this whole podcast exists. Because you're not crazy? To make sure I'm not feeling crazy. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so right now, let's talk about, uh, uh, I was going to say something that I thought was going to make it sound like a bigger deal than it is. Than it is. Uh, but look, Kat's still not here. She hasn't shown up. So mm-hmm. maybe we nope. should have been playing it like she's late this whole time and we could call her throughout. Kat, where are you? <laughs> it's just going to voicemail. She's not answering. No. I did notice, however, she's messaging you Oh yeah. While we're doing the show and she knows we're doing the show right now. Oh yeah. That's exactly why she's doing it. Cause she knows she can distract us by messaging us. Yeah. What? In fairness, she said she was gonna. So. Oh, she did. Oh yeah. Now I remember you're right. Yeah. Let's talk about some <laughs> fictional role models from, from, from whenever. Now, obviously some of them may be from the 1980s and that's fine, but, uh, and maybe I'm making this, I don't want to say I'm making an exception because I feel like lately on last several episodes, I don't try to hold us tightly to the 1980s if it bleeds out before or after. I told this story about a saxophone that started in the, 19, in the 1840s. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, it, it's a thread that ran through the 80s, yeah. so it counts. Um, but uh, let's talk about some of the folks in fictional in fictional work that influenced our behavior. And Is she messaging again or is that you? That's you, isn't it? <laughs> I can see you typing. <laughs> I want to see what you wrote. Dang it. Is that, am I boring, you guys? It can't be boring cat. So, you know, let's, I'll tell you what, let's talk about some examples first. And then I did do some, cause I like to do some nerdy reading and I found some interesting okay. things that some smarter people than me, the, the good news for you is it doesn't even take up a whole page. So there you go. Got that going. We'll, we'll fill it with our commentary. No problem. So one of the first times I remember feeling influenced by a character. Mm-hmm. Now look, uh, first, first of all, this is not to detract from our actual male role models in our lives. You know, we don't have to get into that. My okay. dad doesn't listen to my show, so I'm not too worried about it. It seems like my mom might. I don't know that she would tell him, but she might tell him something <laughs> if she's mad and wants to hurt his feelings, maybe. Do you know what Will said on his podcast? I don't know. But uh, certainly my father had an influence on the person that I ultimately Of course, yeah. Um, but in addition to that, and maybe it was easier because I spent more time watching television shows and having these kinds of chats with my father. <laughs> it seems like my <laughs> earliest influences. You know, I'm talking about, uh, you know, less than two digits year year old. So, you know, maybe, I don't know, five, six years old, seven, eight years old. Mm-hmm. We're superheroes. Really? Um, okay. Adam West, uh, you know, or should I say Batman? Batman's okay. the character. So Batman, Bru- as portrayed, so, though, by Adam West. Bruce Wayne, then, or Batman? Is it which, or was it both? More Batman, okay. I think, for right. this reason. Uh, I'm talking about the 1966 television series, of course, is that the thing that really stuck with me is, how analytical he was. Um, I loved and was fascinated by how 
they would try to piece together, you know, the mystery of the show. And mm-hmm. I know it was campy, but mm-hmm. mystery of the show and use computers and logic and reasoning to solve these ridiculous puzzles. Yeah. Um, I do see early on, you know, and later on there'd be other characters that I got into that did, did sort of thing. And I still love murder mysteries to this day, but there's something that in, in other characters, you're going to see a through line that made me, I think a more intellectually curious person mm-hmm. in the way they had to investigate these things. I don't think I'm reaching either. It sounds like maybe I'm stretching for content. I'm not seriously. I remember <laughs> these sort of making these connections or now making this connection based on how I remember feeling when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Right. Like you might not have been able to articulate that back then, but looking back now, you can see that's why it had that impact mm-hmm. on you. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. I think if I were a different generation and maybe it would be, it would have been Columbo, you know, if I mm. were a little bit uh, older. Oh, so whoever might be that the, the, the analytical kind of problem solver. Yeah. I, mean, I guess I could see it. There are a few that I would pick and they're all for different reasons, really. And mm-hmm. yeah. So th- the first one is, I guess is not a fictional character, but it's everything he portrayed is what kind of was, it informed me and helped. Well, let's, let's stop hiding what it is. Steve Martin is who who I'm thinking about. Oh, Mm yeah. And I can't think of a particular role he's played, but isn't he always kind of the same guy in everything he does, whether he's in his stand up or he's this aloof, goofy, a little bit bumbling out of his element, sort of whatever he always plays. Think of him in the jerk. Think of him in my blue heaven. Think of him in anything. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I think it was, and it could have been, it couldn't have been just any comic or comedian. I think it was because he always came out on top and he embraced his goofiness and his nuttiness. Mm-hmm. And I was always an atypical kid. Uh, and I've, I've stayed an atypical adult. I mean, from my musical tastes to my things I find funny to, you know, and all of that. And the people I grew up with were the kids I grew up with. They were not accepting of that kind of, you know, we, you live inside of your little bubble pre-internet and here's the norm. And I wasn't the norm. And so you felt weird about it. Right. Mm-hmm. And, but I saw Steve Martin. I'm like, well, that dude is like, I want to be that dude. Not that I wanted to be a professional comedian or a professional actor or whatever, but right. the roles that he played took what I knew to be his genuine nuttiness and he used it to his advantage. And I always felt that not because of anything he did or said as a problem solver or detective, as you said, but just in the way that he was, he didn't care if he came across as being the oddball or the misfit. And it empowered me to eventually find a way to not be ashamed by my own misfittedness or whatever word I just made up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> can you, can you see that? Does, I, does that yeah. any, uh, any of that ever resonate? He's for on you? my, he's on my list. He's on your list. For the, he's on my list for the same reason. <laughs> but, and I'll give you a specific example. Cause again, uh, you know, this resonated with me and I'm jumping around chronologically and that's fine. Mm-hmm. But the character of CD Bates in 1987's Roxanne, a, a film yes. which he not only starred in, but he also wrote it. Okay. So I think you're right. When you talk about how he, you know, is as a person in real life could be reflected certainly most, you know, closely probably by the characters he chooses, not only to play like in the mm-hmm. jerk, et cetera, mm-hmm. and so on, but the ones he writes and he wrote this film and the, the, the scene in the in the bar where he takes down the guy who makes fun of his nose, mm-hmm. you know, he yes. comes up with, I don't know what it is, I'll come up with, he throws the dart to determine, he has the guy throw the dart to determine mm-hmm. how many other clever ways he has to insult himself, <laughs> that he could disarm that guy to show him, like, you can't hurt my feelings. And not only that, but I'm also more clever than you are. Yeah. So yeah. like you're saying, a way of finding 
how to turn what you felt uncomfortable or different or that mm-hmm. made you feel uncomfortable because you thought it was different into a strength yeah. instead of a liability. Mm-hmm. And you're right. He does that in a lot of characters. And the jerk's a good example too, because he's not aware of how, <laughs> you know, how much of an idiot he is. Right. Um, and, and the way that yeah. the jerk is a wonderful example too, because, because he is unaware of how out of place he is, yeah. he forges ahead with it. He's not uncomfortable because he doesn't know to be uncomfortable. He doesn't know how fish out of water he is. And that is ultimately what makes him a success and makes him do well in mm-hmm. all of his ventures because yeah. he didn't know any better as that he couldn't do it. He just, mm-hmm. he just was himself and it all worked out and people were stunned by that. You know, they're like, well, he, he said what he was thinking. You know, my guy's like, that's great to know right. you can do that. He hates these cans. <laughs> and you know, along those lines too, because we could save on Steve Martin for another moment, because the other thing I think I learned from him is, or admired and sort of aspired to, to be is, and I think it's in the later films, certainly in like Roxanne and in LA Story, mm-hmm. which came out in 90 or 91, is, is, is how he approached relationships. In Roxanne, in an LA Story, he has this maturity about you know, the, the, uh, you know, the, the relationship he has or the, the woman that he's interested in sort of like what we were talking about earlier about the, you know, attractive women where he, 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 he was attracted to strong women. Mm-hmm. They were not mm-hmm. a threat. Um, and also he, uh, he knew it wasn't about him if they weren't interested you know, right. so mm-hmm. Daryl Hannah sleeps with the other character. He doesn't say, oh, you know, again, he's, he's not slut shaming her. It's right. like, well, I understand why that happened, <laughs> but I still like you yep. and we can still have a relationship. I get you it. know, and similarly yeah. in, uh, you know, LA, LA story, the woman he's interested in is dating someone else and that's fine. And, you know, mm-hmm. and he just sort of, yeah, anyway. So right. yeah, he's he, maturity he feel about that, love. He doesn't feel that he's lost. He just didn't win. Yeah. And that's a real distinction. There's one thing to lose. There's another thing to just have not won. And yeah. he had that sort of view on whatever was happening to him in, in a lot of his films. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm going to take it back time-wise and okay. also uh, probably concept-wise. And again, a lot of these concepts, like I said about Batman, I was a young child. So my sort of understanding or what I diluted Batman down into as far as moral lessons or things I would a- admired about the character, pretty simple and straightforward. Similarly, I want to say Superman and Clark Kent. I'm going to throw Clark Kent in there this time too. Okay. Uh, as played by Christopher Reeve in, in Richard Donner's, Donner's Superman. You know, the 1978 mm-hmm. film and the sequel uh, yep. in 1980. Um, one thing that always literally stuck out with me because a lot of times, again, when you're a kid, if you admire a, a character in a movie, a TV show, a book, uh, a song, it could be someone they're singing. When they say something that, it's like getting a lesson from your, your parents almost. You know, hmm. so when Superman said to Lois Lane, I never lie. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, I can't ever lie either then. <laughs> you know, that if Superman doesn't lie and I admire right. him, I'm not going to lie. I don't know how much lying I was doing then, but that became sort of a, I don't know, like a tenant. Is that the word? Mm-hmm. For me, you know, from that point forward, as far as, uh, I don't know, a barometer of my, you know, how truthful I was being to myself, to other people. Like an aspirational thing. You're like, well, yeah. I, I would like to be more like this superhero, which... <laughs> If that's not a role model, what is? You're, you're mapping yeah. your behavior based on what you have learned or interpreted or felt through the portrayal right. of this character. Yeah, perfect. And I'll actually lump Batman and Superman together. Yeah. It seems, again, seems obvious, but as a kid, it's epitomized by that phrase we associate with Superman, which I, maybe it comes from the original TV show. I don't think it comes from the comics or Superman or Donner's films. Truth, justice in the American way. Mm-hmm. That, again, you got truth in there, but justice. Both Batman and Superman had this hyper sense of justice. Right. Now, how it's portrayed, look, as an adult, you realize it's ridiculous. Like Superman literally captures criminals, 
ties them up, drags them to police officers, says these guys stole this boat. He drops the boat off. Mm-hmm. He didn't Mirandize anybody. Uh, it looks like he planted evidence. You know, I mean, those guys are getting off. They're not going to jail. Yeah. In reality, those guys are not going to jail. Sure. But as a kid- In our know, show. Yeah. <laughs> for me, again, <laughs> it was this black and white sort of, you know, there's good- Now, look, later on, you realize there's nuance and it's there's a more mature perspective. But early on, certainly, I had this hyper sense of justice that's still with me today. Now I temper it with maturity, but because mm-hmm. I realized, you know, it's not so simple, but- um, right. So I've got one for you. And he, now we enter the part of the show for Kat because she's going to relate to this on some level, I'm sure. <laughs> All and right, it's going to be a trucker. It's uh, uh, Conway well, it Twitty. Is, it is a trucker. You guys, it's it's not Conway, Conway Twitty? No, no, he's a country oh. singer. No, oh. no, no. A country singer. Oh. Oh. So this is, um, and I like- Rather than cheap out and just do another actor at all of his roles, I wanted to pick one and, and zero it in. And so, mm-hmm. and I'm sure I have no doubt it's because my dad was a trucker and he was such a, a powerful influence on me. But also, it, it's like a combination of my dad and Steve Martin in this character okay. of Jack Burton. <laughs> I didn't even think of that. Right. So, so in That's Big so Trouble in Little China, Kurt Russell plays right. Jack Burton and he is... He is a no-nonsense, get-the-job-done truck driver, like my dad probably was, mm-hmm. but he was also a wisecracker. And he, mm-hmm. and he was this, probably, I'm really finding a lot of self-discovery in the course of doing this and realizing that he too was out of his element a lot, but mm-hmm. he forged ahead, right? Imagine him throughout Big Trouble where yeah. all the, you have these crazy ninjas that are throwing lightning around and throwing their hats. Mm-hmm. And then you have these monsters and then you have the, the <laughs> low pan with the this lightning bolt hand. And he, and he was just like, Oh, well let's figure it out. Or he would just, just something goofy to deal with it. Almost, mm-hmm. He was almost like the, the, the humorous equivalent of Indiana Jones shooting the guy with the sword, right? Is let's find an atypical right. way to handle this. That is complemented by my method of just, kind of not give a fuckery. He's just kind of like, oh, I'm a trucker and I'm going to handle this and it's my load. I'm going to get there on time. And he was embroiled in this thing. But the thing that I I think I most reacted to, and you could say, oh, well, John, you just love the movie. That's why. And that doesn't hurt. Uh, Certainly if I didn't like the movie, I would not have related to the character. But I think the movie is good because of his characterization here, what Kurt Russell does. And he breathes life into this character that otherwise could have been just one or the other. He just could have been mm-hmm. a get the job done trucker, or he could have been an incompetent wisecracker. But right. ultimately, he was both and neither. He was the best parts of both of those things. And it was absolutely what was needed to get the job done. Right. That's perfect. Oh my gosh. And I see it's perfect for you, especially. But yes. And you hit on another one of mine because oh. uh, one of mine is Indiana Jones. And oh, just yeah. a moment ago, for the same reasons you like Jack sure. Yeah. Minus the humor part of it. But the same reason I also mentioned Clark Kent when I said Superman is Clark Kent and Indiana Jones both gave me early on the sense that I could be a nerd and -hmm. still be super cool too. Yes. You know, the most powerful man in the world was this, you know, bumbling fool when he was, you know, with glasses and, (laughs) you know, greased hair. And uh, Indiana Jones, the first 10 minutes, 15 minutes is him, you know, in this great adventure, getting the idol that the Belloc ultimately takes from him. Mm -hmm. And then cut to, he's got glasses and a, you know, three piece, you know, tweed suit on. Yep. uh, Lecturing kids in a college. Talking about archaeology, rambling about stuff, homework Mm -hmm. assignments, and everyone there is fawning over him, even though he's not being heroic (laughs) at this moment. Right. Yes. Yeah. I didn't, that didn't occur to me. I guess having the, you know, ladies uh, interested in you. Yeah. And the guys too. (laughs) 
Um, but yeah, so the, the fact that you, there was that duality uh, mm-hmm. for me uh, or, you know, was another like you're talking about with Steve Martin gave me permission to be more of what I felt like I naturally was. I just had another epiphany. I, I, I hope yeah. I haven't interrupted your stream of thought, but no, okay. Indiana yeah. Jones is a superhero too. And mm. Dr. Jones is his alter ego. But mm-hmm. when he becomes Indiana Jones, that's almost like he's putting yeah. on the cape, right? He's out there doing the yeah, adventures. Right, yeah. So it makes sense to me that you just mapped Batman and Superman and Indy, oh, yeah. who is right. basically following the prototypical superhero model. Yeah, you're right. About that, I just got goosebumps. You're right. I didn't realize that was so transparent, but yeah, yeah. that's right. Well, yeah. it didn't occur to me until we just laid it out yeah. like this, but no, yeah, no yeah. doubt. Holy crap. Yeah. And they're almost, <laughs> if you had these, if you told a story about Indiana Jones and said, I think- isn't that you, Dr. Jones? Didn't you do that thing? Mm-hmm. Nobody would believe you. Right. You know no, no. I mean? It's not the same guy. No. <laughs> no. Certainly not. Jumping a, swinging <laughs> right. across a chasm with a whip? No. <laughs> right. Somebody somewhere is like, have you never noticed you don't see them together in the same place? Right. Yeah. Like, <laughs> All right. But the other thing, to your, the thing that's most similar to what you said about Jack Burton is that Indiana Jones doesn't know, this ties into everything I said about what, what I felt so far and, and, some, and what, some of the things you said is, he doesn't know how he's going to get the arc, for example, mm-hmm. but he knows he has to. Right. And so he has confidence in himself. Perseverance. Well, he knows perseverance and that sort of trust and faith that, I mean, there's a line in Indiana Jones where he says, how are we going to get that, that done? I I'm don't know. This I'm making this up as right. I go along. Absolutely. I mean, right. And that, but he, he knew he had to try no matter what. So it was like that sense of justice or what had to be done and, you know, confidence in himself to do it. Will, I am loving this show. I did not know how this was going to go. <laughs> I have gotten more personal insight in the last 30 minutes <laughs> than I would have gotten from any therapy. But yeah. what it just just occurred to me is mm-hmm. something I learned from those characters that I, 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 I don't want to attribute that all. Obviously, as you said, my parents and my friends and my group and everything influenced me, but something yeah. I learned from them that I have done for my entire adult life is just trust yourself. And that sounds super shallow and trite, but let let me elucidate you a little bit on what I mean is that, for example, when I was a road warrior and I booked a hotel stay, if anyone else had booked my hotel before I got on the plane, I would go, well, let me check and see if actually I did book the right place in the right city and the right thing. But I've said to myself in the past, I'm going to trust last week, John, I'm going to trust that he was competent, that he did what he was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to double check him. I trust that guy because I know him, right? And then going forward, I remember when I left a longtime job to go contract somewhere. And I said, it's a contractor's thing. It's only for six months, but I'm going to, I'm going to double down on me and think that I am going to find a way to make myself indispensable. And then it worked out. Maybe it was because I willed it into being, Yeah. but it's the, it's that Indiana Jones kind of, I'll make it up as I go. I'm willing to, I'm willing to take the leap of faith and believe that I could get there just on my own merits if I believe that I can. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm doing it right now, right? Where I lost my job a few months ago and I'm, yeah. I'm heavily investing in my ability to make content creation a sustainable thing. It's irrational right. and stupid and it's, it's an absolute <laughs> folly, but I believe it's no. possible and I'm willing to yeah. invest in what I think I can do, even though I'm going to make it up as yeah. I go, which is what I've been doing. Wow. Yeah. That, yeah. That's awesome. Mm. Uh, you make me think though, that I think for me, the feelings that you, how you just describe yourself and that confidence that you have in yourself now, and that we maybe discovered first or first recognized in these characters that we're talking about, for me, they were aspirational for a good portion of my life. And there was mm-hmm. ebbs and flows of strength. 
I think for me, I've only sort of in the last five years, maybe 10 years, <laughs> could say I consistently believe in myself that, you know, and consistently keep going after the arc, you know, or, or, or stay on that journey. Um, whereas throughout the earlier few decades, it was, uh, I'd lose that kind of, you know, sight of the. And I'm going to go one further and tell you, I'm still not confident. Mm -hmm. I, I still don't have any trust in my current self that I'm going to be able to accomplish mm -hmm. these things. But I believe, like I said, I believe last week, John, that he did the right thing and I'll just trust that right. I'm in good shape. And I trust tomorrow, John, that he'll make the right decision no matter what happens huh. today. I don't have confidence that I'm going right. to do the right thing, but I believe that I can figure it out when the next thing happens, when the next shoe drops, when the next twist comes. Right. And that's, that's exactly this. right back to Indy, right back to him. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know how I'm right. going to accomplish. I don't know how I'm going to get on the submarine. Look, he got on a submarine that was diving. How did he get inside? <laughs> I, that's ridiculous. I, 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 that's, did he knock? Yeah. Did he, what did he swim? Did he hold his breath? Point is he worked it out. He had faith. Yeah. He took the leap. I'll figure out how to do it. <laughs> Huge Raiders plot hole right there. <laughs> <laughs> I always wondered about that. Yeah. He's just holding on to that periscope, right? Yeah. And, that's the last and they're we all see cheering. Him, Yay. You're about to Yay. drown is all they're saying. Right. <laughs> right. That dude's dead. You know that, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But cheer That's him cool. on. Make him feel good about it. Is he in the sub when then have the next scene? Or do we just see the sub arrives and he's now the, on the next deck, time we see know, him, he's like whatever. punching somebody Dunk. and his hat flies up. So he, and right. he gets the jacket that's too small. The sub has already died. <laughs> like he just hung on like Aquaman the whole yeah. way. He's like a sucker on a whale. He just hung on and rode along. Yeah. Right. I don't know. He said he's a superhero. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> that's fine. All right, all right. Yeah. He had his yeah. hat on. So it's superpowers. That's why it was different. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. why he always has to get it back. You're right. That's right. That's his, the source of his power. Right. So meta. Mm -hmm. Okay. I have another one that okay. is not a superhero. By any stretch of the imagination, but it is also, I'm channeling my inner cat here. It is also a truck driver. Coincidentally, I like how I named two superheroes and you named two truckers, two truck drivers, right? I don't know who knows why, but it is coincidentally. And I'm sure, I'm sure it has to do with the influence of my dad and not just because he sure. passed at an early age, but well, damn, that's another insight that I just, you know, ding, just, just kind of a bell oh, hit sure. me because I lost my dad early. These models these role models that I had somewhat mapped my father onto, mm -hmm. they continued after he was gone. And so I was able to almost like I was able to continue to learn from my dad through these characters that I attributed to be dad like. Oh yeah. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. Cause Absolutely. I lost my dad when I was 18, I think. Yeah. It was way too soon. Mm -hmm. Wait, I, I was not fully a man yet. I needed more input, oh. you know, you know? Mm -hmm. but so it's, it's bandit from, it, it, he's a trucker oh. in that he, he's in a truck driving movie, right? So Burt Reynolds that, yeah, plays so bandit. That, that whole film feels like a trucker movie. It absolutely. is. It, it's all about, it's, it's, there's plenty of stuff going on and it really is just the fun that bandit got out of life, despite what was going on around him. Yes. He was involved in a truck driving movie. I'm sure that again, that's mapped because of the correlation with my, with my family, but he was, <laughs> And I think I told you before, because I so closely correlate that film with my dad that I've not rewatched right. the film since he passed. Just, I don't know if I right. can, it's just, there's too much there, but what I remember of it from 20 some odd years ago, 30 some odd years ago, it's just so, I just think of him with that goofy Burt Reynolds, <laughs> goofy laugh, right? He's, he's talking on the CB and he's picking up Sally Field mm -hmm. and they're, they're going balls to the wall. There's no coincidence that when I was able to pick my, my vehicle, the first vehicle I got after my piece yep. of junk pickup was a Pontiac Firebird. Not an accident. Oh, had a, it had a big, the fire 
the it was a white car with a big blue firebird on the hood, right? It was just mm, and it was the yes. bandit. It was it was that mm-hmm. car in my mind. It wasn't anywhere near that car. Six cylinder man, automatic transmission. Point is, I had the bandit's right. car. But Burt Reynolds in that mm-hmm. role, everything that's happening in the film, he is nonplussed. He is always finding a way to yes to win, yes to yes to beat out the the sheriff that's after him, but he's having a good time and he's finding joy despite the adversity that's going on. And mm-hmm. and that was that's something that I that until we were preparing for this show that I had to do a little introspection to find out where well, are there characters that I've mapped that way? And I've definitely picked up on that. Even if things are going horrible, I'm going to find a way to enjoy it. I'm going to gamify it. I'm going to, what do you have to do? I have to do all these dishes. Well, I'm going to make it a game and find a way that I can stack them just right and get the most in there. Like I'm playing Tetris, always finding a way to really get the most out of it. Even if it's not pleasurable, find pleasure in it for yourself. And I, that's what I learned. I think, I think from him, I mean, sir, lots mm-hmm. of places, but that's the one that I can most kind of point to. Gosh, you just made me realize something. And I don't even know if I keep this in the show, but okay. <laughs> well, you're talking about how your dad, uh, the connection between your dad and a lot of the characters and specifically uh, with, with uh, the bandit. I, I, in some of the characters, one of the characters, well, two of the, maybe all these characters, mm. they're somehow related to something I admired about my dad but they, the characters themselves had something I wished he also had. Oh. So almost like, like you're saying, you, you had this opportunity to continue to get lessons from your father in a sense. I was creating a, or adopting myself to, I don't know how you say, the opposite of ado- getting adopted. Um, I was, I was <laughs> casting these fictional characters as a quasi-parental figure in that regard in the way that I felt my dad lacked. It's almost like you were... Like you were weird sciencing together a, a potential, I don't want to say perfect, but all the best pieces. Like I want, you know, this trait and this characteristic and this personality together uh, to kind of build this parental model or not quite that? Not quite that in the sense that I didn't see okay. it as a, a Frankenstein's monster. And a, I, I didn't see a whole, I wasn't creating something that was whole. It was really at that mm-hmm. moment, this is the thing. So this moment, it's Indiana Jones. I'll give you a better example. Um, okay. My father raised me to be very logical, and uh, he admired the character of Spock on Star Trek. You, you know, talking sure. about original sh- series, and I did too. Mm-hmm. And I most thought of my father like that, and admired that about him. But my father could also, because you know, he was straight out of you know Vietnam. I was born, you know, within mm-hmm. a year of him being out of Vietnam, or essentially, I think year, yeah, about I think a year, two years. And so he was, he still wrestles with these things today. But so in addition to being cold and logical, the way Spock could, and my father very rational mm-hmm. to and analyze something like Batman, but without the emotion, right. my father could also have the complete opposite and be very emotional and upset and mm. those things. So for me, my example is I focus on Spock because it carves out mm-hmm. that other part that, you know, is for me at the time as a kid is troubling. So I admire Spock. And I aspire to be Spock because he, he has the things about my dad that I love, minus that one thing that could scare me as a little kid. Oh, shit, Will. More goosebumps. <laughs> because yeah. what more do we know about Spock? Yeah. He's not emotionless. Right. He's half human and half Vulcan. Mm. He has that in him. Yeah. He can be incredibly violent if he lets his yeah. guard down, mm-hmm. if he is not able to contain his human side. Right. And we we saw it in the original series some. We saw, you know, during Ponfar, he just absolutely becomes mindless and rage, he's right. rages. 
And it's, it's because 99% of the time he controls that in himself. Right. It's not that he doesn't have it. Like, I don't know if you realized this when you were a kid thinking about Spock as that, how I say, as a, as a more polished and more refined version of those traits you liked in your dad, that you mm-hmm. could control that. But that's exactly what Spock was doing through Leonard Nimoy's portrayal is saying, wow. he's not emotionless. Right. It's simmering underneath the surface. And he is absolutely using all the will he has and flawlessly most of the time. Right. To control it, stay calm, cool, and not allow that to come out or that to to, to manifest. Right. Holy shit! It, right. it fits even more. I you it's know crazy. What? I didn't think of it that way as a kid. What instead I did was I like retconned my my experience or relationship with my father and just made it like, oh, Spock and my dad they're so they're just basically the same. You know, they're similar, mm-hmm. ignoring yeah. certain aspects of my dad, but not realizing like you're suggesting because I we watched all of Star Trek. That I would have known that about him. Spock has those two. Yeah. yeah. Except he right. did a better job and I would want that for my Just father. a better job. Yeah. Right. Holy yeah. shit. I'm canceling my therapy tomorrow. Maybe in hindsight, the only part that you were hoping your dad might've had yeah. was better control over it with the logical powers. Oh my God. One million. It was all there. Percent. You're absolutely it, right. It was all there the whole time. You know, I think we should, we could wrap this up and, and, uh, what I want to say, because now I've had so many revelations that I didn't expect to have, <laughs> especially that last one. Thank you for that. Uh, of course, yeah. it, perfect since you're a Star Trek expert. The the good news is, I suppose, is, I mean, look, look, we're, look, we're talking about, look, we're in our 50s now and it's, it's been a journey and it's, it's, it's a, it continues. The journey continues. What I want to say mm-hmm. is the good news is, and I can only speak for myself, with regard to how I chose these or these, I connected with these folks and their certain traits that I identified, admired, aspired to have. And then, mm-hmm. and then thinking about my relationship with my father and maybe what I learned from him as well is this sort of synthesis of all these things made me focus on and determine to be the best part of all those things. You know, like mm-hmm. I had mm-hmm. a choice. Mm-hmm. I had a choice. Right. I had enough models to make decisions. And I guess gratefully, and I want to say, I thank my father for this. And, you know, of course, the, not to say anything against my mother, my, my, my whole family, friends, is for whatever reason, had the insight to choose the best parts <laughs> of these characters and people, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's just going back to trusting past and future yeah. will. Yeah. Cause apparently he knew what he was doing. So yeah, you can have faith that he'll probably know what he's doing tomorrow. Like I do for future John. And <laughs> to him, I say, keep on trucking. <laughs> yeah. How appropriate oh, yeah, truckers. Yeah. Keep on trucking. <laughs> so we did ask folks for their fictional, uh, Oh yeah. Role models oh, yeah. from the 1980s. And we did get some responses. Brad says somewhere between Han Solo first, Bueller, John Cryer, Pretty in pink, John Cryer, he specifies, and Christian Slater and pump up the volume. That's a totally different subset of characters. <laughs> yes. You're right. And, There's no overlap in those. Yeah, I'm having trouble mapping them all directly to Brad, but I yeah. I obviously respect his choices. That's mm. where that's so it's that's his feeling. But right. mm. like I think the more I get to know Brad, the more I'll understand that, probably. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh Ted just attached a gif of a slimed Peter Venkman. <laughs> <laughs> which it reminds me that when I spoke to Hadley Freeman, the author of so many great articles and books, as I look around for her book here, uh, Life Moves Pretty Fast, where she, <laughs> where she talks about uh, you know various characters in films and what she sort of learned from them, I suppose. She, she cites mm-hmm. Peter Venkman as a good uh, male role model, which I thought was surprising because really? he's, you know, on surface level, he I, seems kind of sexist, et cetera. But she makes a great well, argument. Not only that, yeah. 
He's all about himself. He doesn't care about mm-hmm. anyone else other than ultimately having some some commitment to his friends and colleagues. Mm-hmm. If pressured, yeah, he's kind of a, it's all about me kind of guy. I, I will not be able to explain it how she does, but there's this, there's this okay. she, every chapter is a different uh, you know character and therefore those traits and she examines. Okay. That, mm. That's okay. uh, one of them. Anyway, uh, Craig writes, I was just thinking how often I'd watch Indiana Jones. There you go. Movies in the 80s. There you go. And grew yep. up into an academic librarian who loves to research ancient <laughs> cultures, drink whiskey, study dead languages, and who thinks the world would be a better place if we just punched more Nazis. There you go. All you need is a fedora and you are a superhero. <laughs> that's it. You're almost there. Yes. That's where your power comes from. It's like the radioactive spider for Indiana Jones. Mm -hmm. That's all he needed. Yes. And I just need Craig to bite me. Then I could be one too. Uh, Scott (laughs) writes- Did you just tell Craig to bite you? Is that what you just said? (laughs) Bite me, Craig. That's unkind. (laughs) Scott writes, Officer John Baker and Officer Frank Poncharello. And I think that's first, I think, is he trying to test us? Like, we don't know who that is. Perhaps. Maybe not. But yeah, sure. And why was there even a P- in ships since patrol is already part of the patrol. It's like ATM machine. California Highway Patrol. California Highway Patrol Patrol. And it was called Ships Patrol. Oh, what? Right? I didn't realize that. Okay, yeah, that's so dumb. The, yeah. So the, the acronym is <laughs> is California Highway Patrol, Ships Patrol, but then patrol is already in the acronym. Right. It's, it's just like ATM machine. Yeah. Yeah, anyway. They're kind of two sides of the same coin though, aren't they? The two guys from Baker Ships? I mean, yeah, I having so. those two yeah. together, I mean, they were partners, mm-hmm. which- there's already something amazing to pull as, as a male, as a man to yeah. see two men have brotherly love for one another, like mm-hmm. any, any pair of detectives or policemen or whatever. I think that's a, that's a powerful set of role models to have just in general. Yeah. And a little more as, uh, of an era where it was clear, like, you know, good guys wear white, bad guys wear black, <laughs> you know, it was sort of not a lot sure. of gray in those eighties TV shows. Yeah. Uh, Michael attached a gif of Marty McFly playing the guitar. <laughs> kind of a youthful, adventurous spirit, I think. Another guy who's definitely uh, heads down. I got to do accomplish a certain thing no matter what. Mm-hmm. Christopher wrote, yeah. better yet, be the Terminator. That might have even been a response to Michael posting <laughs> Marty McFly. I wasn't sure. <laughs> uh, and Jack Merritt, 22, I think this is from Twitter, wrote uh, Michael Keaton in Night Shift. There you go. What was the mm. thing he says? Uh, edible paper. Note to self. Right. <laughs> Two interesting observations that I just made. The first is that neither neither of us nor any of our listeners yeah. pointed to any of the beefcakes, right? The Stallones and the Schwarzeneggers and the thing, except for Terminator that just came up, which I think was maybe a bit of a, a lark there. But, right. but that's not what we resonate with. We wanted to see that. We wanted to see people be that, but I don't think we saw ourselves in that, nor did it necessarily... You know, we'd much rather be the John McClane than the, than the, than the John Connor. You know what I mean? It's like there's two different <laughs> worlds kind of thing. Not, I mean, you know what I mean from Terminator. And the point is, yeah. and the other one that I thought that I thought of is that what kind of role models would there have been on in a parallel universe in 1960s now, that podcast, <laughs> would that have been your, your John Waynes and yeah. your, uh, I don't know who all, you know, these people that for us didn't resonate with us because partially we didn't see them. They were in films that were not ones we were watching or were mm-hmm. shows but they're just as viable as role models that people were getting, but they didn't have a venue to talk about those male role models that they had. Cause there was no podcasting back in the 1980s. I, I think you're right. It, w- it would have been different. And I think you're right. The sort of John Wayne as an archetype of what we would have uh, been mm-hmm. exposed to. And I realized I didn't share any of my smart, nerdy, wonky stuff that I read about, but, and you remind me of it because very briefly, what I did, what I found interesting was two things. One, I found a, a, an article that was written in 1988 that was analyzing what role models were in film that like literally that week. And the, mm-hmm. the author of the article points to the fact that the film's out and, and therefore, and thereby the, uh, the, uh, 
the role models that we have are from Big Crocodile Dundee 2 and Bull Durham. <laughs> and she, you know, she, mm-hmm. and ultimately what's interesting to me is that I realized that and thinking about our machismo episode from last year is that by the end of the 1980s, we had a different male role model because yes. even though she ultimately, you know, she, she takes issue with some of the characters, some of the aspects of these various characters I just mentioned to you, mm-hmm. what they have in common is a more sense of vulnerability. Crockle Dundee, even to some aspects, certainly, you know, as compared to an earlier, say Arnold Schwarzenegger character, or Sylvester Stallone, is more emotionally sure. available. Certainly the 14-year-old child is because he's a kid. <laughs> you know, but what she points to as sort of the epitome of, you know, maybe a good role model at the time and sort of where we headed and where we're arriving is the Kevin Costner character in Bull Durham. Yeah. Because, you know, he is, he, again, this is a running theme too. The woman he's attracted to, uh, played, played by Susan Sarandon, is, mm-hmm. you know, sexually experienced, is independent, is strong-willed, mm-hmm. you know, is, you know, level-headed, all, all these things that, um, you know, maybe were uh, left aside earlier as far as, you know, female archetypes in film, just for the femme fatale or the, you know, the ingenue. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. So as maybe the female characters were getting more sophisticated towards the end of the 80s, so were the male characters because he's not threatened by that. He himself is emotionally vulnerable. Anyway, I thought that was interesting to your point about this compared to the sixties. I don't think we had starting evolved maybe to yeah. the end of the eighties. Well, I'm certain depending on which decade people grew up in, they're going to have their own subset of these types of role models. And because of the different eras we lived in, there could be very different reasons most likely too. You know? Yeah. I mean, most likely someone from the sixties who absolutely loved John Wayne is probably because of his machismo, because of his, right. how he handled women, because of how he handled other people. That would not be something that we would aspire to today necessarily, but was absolutely middle of the road, expected, and possibly top of the heap for men right. back then. Yeah, and I, I found, yeah. you know, a sort of bookends to what, what, I, what you're saying. We're creating bookends for the decade and also this conversation. Talked about the end of the 1980s, sort of we arrived. And to your point about the 1960s, I found this other interesting piece that was written at the beginning of the 1980s by a, an English professor who was saying, you know, he, he started a male, uh, what do you call it? He called, well, his paper's called Modern Men or Men's Studies in the 80s. He created a men's studies class because he had talked about for, certainly throughout the 70s and maybe back in the 60s and maybe beyond, there were female studies, women's studies classes. And part of it was to write, was perce- which was perceived as a wrong, and probably rightly so, the perception of women in the sense that they were, you know, uh, sort of uh, harnessed, I think he keeps saying. You know, they were basically stereotyped in real life in particular roles. Sure. Housemaker, housewife, yep. uh, mother, caregiver, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, we should definitely do something to make things more egalitarian. That's why it's important to have these women's studies classes. But what he points out is, and I thought was interesting, is that he said, we don't have men's studies classes. And men may very well be victims (laughs) of the same thing, where they're expected to be macho and strong and providers and not have emotion, you know, uh, these kinds of things. And weren't allow, allowing at least uh, certainly in, in, in pop culture and media, et cetera, because we weren't having a dialogue about it for men to evolve in the way that he suggests we were already doing. And that's the double standard. If we attend, it, sign up, attend, go to, and even get a grade in a men's study class. Yeah. Wussies. <laughs> yeah. Right. Just be a man. Just be, you know, just, just man up, right. just deal with it. And there's introspection is not typically a, uh, a trait that is admired in men. <laughs> it's so silly, right? I mean, it's so silly. And, and, and yeah. And I guess where do these, 
I don't know. Now we're getting going off topic, but um, I, I guess to, to leave it there, like you pointed out, our listeners and you and I, mm-hmm. again, we navigated this somehow and chose the right realm. Mo- <laughs> Look, when we say male role models, even, even though we say it in a, from a gender perspective, we can say that I suppose mm-hmm. because we identify as male, but right. the, the, the traits we talked about and the traits we talked about for women, they, they're yeah. good for everybody. Anybody. Certainly. Right. 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 It's just that when those traits are in men, I don't find them attractive. That's the, that's the difference. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, Will, right, fair enough. you're a good looking guy. Fair I just enough. don't feel that way. It's, it's a, nothing fair personal. Enough. Hey, okay. if you're not attracted to me, then I mean, isn't, yeah, you're not going to be attracted to anyone. <laughs> There's nothing. I got nothing, right? That's the best. Yes. I don't know. Although Anson Mount. Mm, oh yeah. Hey, I get that. Mm, okay. All right. Hey, on that note, uh, before John Anson Mounts, <laughs> that was our show. Uh, and our show was brought to you in part mm-hmm. by our early adopters, Kathy Burke, Rick Parker, and Karen mm-hmm. Flieger. I apologize for seeing your names in the order on which they're written in the paper. <laughs> and not trying to scramble them up as I went along. You can't uh, outcat the cat. Do it your own spe- way. That's right. And a special thanks to our secret of our success level Patreon supporters, John Henderson, Greg Coletta, Marcus Taylor, Tony Great, nice. Brad Bowman, and Nick Guillory. Thank you, Nick. Um, yeah, I've got some other stuff. We could read it next time. Some comments or whatever. Anyway, I'll just say this. Hey, if you have an opportunity to do so and you can, please support the show any way you can. Making comments, mm-hmm. subscribing, sharing posts, or go to 1980snow.com slash support to find out how you give us literally $1. And that's it. Never yep. give us any more money. Or... Give us some amount of money on a routine basis, you know, recurring basis. That's preferable. Yes. <laughs> yes. All right. Hey, that's it. We will talk to you with Kat. We will talk to you next yes. time on 1980s Now. Hasta la vista. This podcast is part of the 80s Ruled Network. Visit the 80s Ruled on Facebook for more 1980s awesome.